minds. And here is your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author of Psychic of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, Damian Keller is binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of it's not aliens, it's worse, it's us. And if you are interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, you'll find everything you need there. And before we get started, I just want to warn everybody, I am still recording from the middle of the Pine Barrens in a trailer, living with my dog. So if you hear barking, squealing, scratching, Maybe even drag racing. I apologize in advance. And now, our guest for today is Jared Murphy. How you doing? I'm doing great. After an in, after, you know, that kind of an invite, that kind of intro. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> and you, your new mini doc has been released yesterday. It is amazing. I wish I had this documentary before the first time I interviewed you, because you make everything so clear in this documentary that that over interviewed, you know, how many interviews I've done with you? Maybe 50? <laughs> like, like that, now, now I understand all this stuff, but if I had this in the beginning, I could have understood it in about 38 minutes. <laughs> Uh, which is exactly the length of my full. Apparently, I've been told that this is a full-length documentary. I thought it was a mini two, because it's just enough time to apparently include commercial breaks. So, you know, at forty, at thirty-eight plus minutes, it's a, uh, it, it's a bookends of here's what the subject matter is. It's exactly what you're saying, where it's like it's such a complex, huge uh, subject. And to explain to people that this is all connected, how do you how do you do that in a way where you're talking engineered soil, genetic abilities, and like really we we really got this wrong, you know? And you know this this kind of like broke it down with it's it's always the picture book that does it, right? Yeah, this is it's, this is it. That's what this is. Do a great job from from starting out at, at the beginning and carrying the viewer all the way through, and uh, and explaining the importance of the polygonal construction, the um, the the, the uh, properties in the soil, the electrical properties, and all that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's just very clear and easy to understand. Cool. The um, and that's. You know, I think everybody picks up pieces and then, you know, when you're describing the whole thing going, how could this be one giant interconnected system? It's like, what does this look like to really put it down? And you realize I'm going to have to put out a lot more of these. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I think for anyone who's listened to us, like, like you said, 50 times or who is, this is one of those documentaries now and it's on YouTube. It's also on Rockfin. Uh, it'll be on my channel on notaliens.com. You'll be able to get that in the memory area also, but it's on YouTube. And to, like you said, here it is step by step laid out all these different layers, genetic abilities, the polygonal stuff that did you, did you, oh, by the way, and, um, Michael from Dark Hour did all the music. Uh, very talented composer. And, you know, all that music is original. That's all his. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And I like and, the way the uh, tempo sort of, like, it starts out kind of slow. And yeah. And then, then it kind of speeds up as you dig in deeper. Cool. That's a great... Uh, I, I, I love to hear all this. I mean, I, I really... Uh, I feel like I'm a kid in in junior high or in elementary school doing my like I feel like I'm doing my science fair project and I want to go to district <laughs> like I want to win. It's like is my display on earthquakes going to do it? And and for anyone listening who wants to know, yes, I won the district science fair every year. I was in it for three years, <laughs> <laughs> and I did do earthquakes and lasers, and then one year was volcanoes. Like who? What kid doesn't want to pick all those? You know, destroy, destroy, and destroy. Um, but the uh, documentary was a lot of work. And, you know, when you're throwing all the pictures and everything together and you're like, oh, I want to include this and I can't. Or, oh, it's going to take. It's it's amazing, actually, how much you have to cut back rather than add to create something that's digestible mm-hmm. i was surprised by that, that i was super been, surprised by that. that happened to me was writing my book my book came out to be half the amount of pages that i actually wrote you know and why not if you're going to be achieve zen why why shouldn't it be in less pages right well, you can't really use that many words to begin with with zen no it's just it's just a mantra so the you know the did you like um uh, did you like the comparison of the cymatics wheel uh, showing the frequency and vibration with the uh, yeah. with the polygonal wall? Yeah, I thought that was awesome. That was really cool. nice. That you know, it's been since now that we're recording and people are going to be listening. I'll definitely really appreciate everybody going and checking it out on Not Aliens on YouTube or Not Aliens on Rockfin. But it's been 13 hours since it's been released and it's already been watched uh, uh you know over a few hundred times already a couple hundred over a couple hundred and uh i've never done a midweek release this is the first time so i was really happy with everyone who joined and that you've been able to get to it too and it's uh it's been really fun to make it does make you rethink about how to tell the story of this data you know, it's, you know, we've been at this now. It's kind of interesting, the metamorphosis of this on our channels, because the subject matter of our ancient megalithic past and the way it's being described now, I think is a paradigm shifter. And I don't think like it's a, you know, you popped a balloon and nobody heard the echo. And I do think that the way it's being described is different than it, than it was. So that's, that's interesting to me to, be able to present information that unifiedly kind of throws everything together mm-hmm. and says there's something 
from the megalithic constructions to, uh, you know, not having to worry about whether or not you're the archaeologist that discovered a mummy or not. The finds that are out there for you are literally in the soil. You should um, do the core sampling. And there's always dynastic and erosion and thousands of years of uh, people maybe maybe occupying one area over another or, you know, a couple thousand years of abandonment and then reoccupied for a couple thousand years. And, mm-hmm. you know, what if only, you know, it's there's so many different reasons why layers of an existing site could have been tilled way deeper than you expected, you know, burials that dig through eight or 10 feet of what would have been undisturbed material. And then, you know, there's confusion as to what they are, but if they're compacting the soil for these ancient, just, we're not giving anything away everybody for the documentary, but as one point that like I like to make is the megalithic polygonal walls have to sit and for the most part, they're sitting on a foundation. And we assume that, that in some cases, like at the Great Pyramid of Giza, that, oh, they put it on bedrock. But they're moving 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 ton stones. And they're not just moving the stones. They're cutting them. They're shaping them. And they're moving them with impunity, with no effort. And why would it be hard for them then to pre-compact not only the existing soil to 100%? Our requirement today is to pre-compact soil for uh, like the house, the house that you're going to buy here mm-hmm. that's closing here shortly. The the walls that the house is sitting, and granted, I know you live on the East Coast where, you know, the British have been coming for 400 years and the there are homes there that have whole half of trees as their main support beams. Yes. And there are homes that date to the 1600s and 1700s is impressive. And, and I, I think it's, it's crazy, but the these homes had foundations that even in the most primitive time we were trying to pre-compact, whether it's mud, sand, rocks, combo of everything, uh, clay. We were, we were trying to com- pre-compact the basement foundational walls to like 90%. So the idea of an archaeologist going to the Great Pyramid and saying, well, for all this time we've thought the Great Pyramid of Giza is sitting on a giant piece of bedrock. What if it's one massive uh, conformity of precompaction that it's that's actually a solid surface that was created, and then you know you have Sakse Waman, which you know it's in the documentary, but you have the foundational wall under the building itself, and we build a wall and we precompact and deal with about barely two or three feet. And and so when people think foundation, you might be thinking big hole in the ground. I'm going to paint a picture for everyone. Uh, it's not a big hole with just, you know, a tall wall and you're thinking, oh, that's the foundation. The most important part is what's under the wall, which is only barely two feet of pre-compacted, whatever they've dug away. So then they lay class five gravel, which is just about every dirt road in our country. It's a particular combination of sand and rocks that seem to all stay basically in place despite wind, rain, snow, and otherwise. And that's pretty much every dirt road in the country. And you put that down into a foundation, you pack it down with a little machine that looks like a lawnmower without wheels, except it's, I don't know, about a hundred pounds, 90 pounds. And it, and it very quickly tamps the ground. And so it, 
it agitates all the material to become a hard surface to create a foundation. And why we are digressing on this, why you're listening, is because literally no archaeologist ever anywhere has ever core sampled sub-foundational structural material to find out how the buildings are engineered. They've looked at footings. They've looked at like, oh, wow, the Roman Colosseum, the uh, the footings in Greco-Roman amphitheaters appear to be placed to, again, the, the foundational footings, like these pylons, these posts that are actually part of the structure that they can see that honeycomb under all these giant amphitheaters. They're like, wow, it looks like they were planning for earthquakes and they were seismic. They were treating the foundational footings as a seismic metamaterial. And they're like, oh, that's fascinating. But literally no one ever anywhere is taking a core sample and going, oh, look, there's two feet of this silicrete that they crushed up from a rock that's 2,000 miles away. You know, they get all impressed with, you know, uh, the giant statues and the, and oh, you know, Aswan Quarry gets brought up all the time about Egypt, but also Baalbek and Lebanon. And there's this quarry, Aswan Quarry, that supplied a lot of the stones not just in Egypt, but in Baalbek and other places. And it's astounding because they're like, this This came from a 1,000 miles away in Aswan or 800 or 700 miles away. And no one has done a core sample and gone, hey, it looks like the pre-compacted material under, and I bring up Sakse Waman because everyone looks at those giant walls and there's 800-ton blocks, there's 100-ton blocks, there's, 15 sided blocks, but they're so incredibly big. And currently, there's a belief that in many places on, at Sakse Waman, that the foundational wall goes 30 or 40 feet deep from, I'm, I'm saying the actual, the built wall that you're looking at above ground, the actual lowest layer is 40, 50, 60 feet down. Then the foundation would be under that. So, is it that they really buried 40 feet of wall? Or is that actually forty years of history, forty feet of history, that they're not uh, excavating because they don't want to tell you what's in that those layers that are just along the wall through erosion and through um, composting and drifting winds. But then when you do get to the bottom, there's a foundational wall, and these buildings are built on cymatics and frequencies. And long story short. The foundational wall that's directly under the structure, the way we build, matters to us because, well, we don't want our house to fall down. But these people, these very advanced ancient humans, they weren't just pre-compacting that soil and adding class 5 gravel. I think we're going to find, as we do core sampling, that the silicretes, the the fine quartzite material, silicretes, a type of kind of a quartzite where the frequency management and energy management of these buildings were absolutely inclusive of the directly supporting wall and then moving away from the building like the Nazca lines, which we've talked about, that these are geo circuits. And all this time, the irony is, is, you know, when I was little, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I wanted to be, I wanted to dig up dinosaurs. I didn't care about archaeology. I just wanted to be the guy who found Tyrannosaurus rexes and stegosauruses <laughs> and oh my gosh, who didn't want to find dinosaurs? Yeah, it's like me too. Oh, Land of the Lost. You know, I'd love to find a slee stack mixed in with a dinosaur. Mm. That was the gateway to figuring it all out. <laughs> slee stacks. Man, wasn't the Land of Lost great? It was great. 
Oh, the sleep stacks did freak me out a little bit when I was little. Oh, terrified me. Absolutely terrified me. I was one. My mom made me, uh, my mom loved me so much. She made me a sleep stack costume. <laughs> I was, I held on to that thing and played with it forever. I, I, I think I was a sleep stack when I was like eight. And, uh, man, that was the best costume. Only she didn't quite get the concept that sleep sticks, sleep stacks had tiny tails. So mm. she kind of gave me a slightly bigger than I wanted tail. Hmm. Cause, I don't know. She didn't. She made it up. She didn't go off a pattern. She well, just made it up. It's okay. I was born with a tail, dude. How long? Uh, my understanding was it was pretty long. You had to move it after I was born. Yeah, well, you heard about that news story. There was a kid born with a tail that had a ball at the end of it, just like two weeks ago. Really? Yeah, it's pretty trippy. I mean, we're talking. Why would it have a ball at the end? Ah, uh, like a dinosaur, like a swing tail. It, this kid literally had a tail that was solidly almost as long as one of its legs with a kind of a ball at the end of it from the photo, from what I could tell from the photo. Uh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, because that just, just proof, came up. It just up. proves that we're just reptiles. Well, we're something more than what we seem because there's no way we're as conscious as we were and there's no way... I think at some point we all hit a freeze frame and I think our abilities to change or morph, I don't even think it's, you know, we even make an assumption about evolution. If I say evolution, you're like, you know, you suddenly have a picture of a monkey to a human from a loin, you know, from, you know, hairy to a loincloth, half walking uh, caveman to, you know, where we are. And the, I, I don't think as we look at our ancient past, you know, the true history of our, Paleoanthropology shows that humanity has been here anatomically alongside all these other races, way more Lord of the Rings style. And so if evolution as we know it isn't correct, maybe the morphology of the race isn't that it was progress like we've progressively declined and stayed in a safe mode while it's not all functioning together. But I think our ancient if when you look at these giant megalithic buildings and these polygonal walls and our genetics, I think we may have been able to like change how we looked at will or I'm not saying instantly, we maybe like or a like million people. Yeah. Like depending on your job or your skill or your, you know, what you were up to, you may have been someone who was, well, you know, I'm working in the deserts today or I'm working in high heat environments or I'm working in, you know, like controlling, you know, we think of, you know, I talk about Wim Hof controlling his body temperature and his inflammatory response and then, you know, heating and cooling consciously your body, just like a reptile or just like uh, a penguin or a polar bear to be able to do both. That it, that adaptation isn't just a matter. Well, you know, we've been breeding in this environment for a thousand years. What if it was more? Well, this week I'm working in the Arctic and tomorrow I'm going to be working here or in an hour. I'm going to be working here and the next hour I'm going to be in this heating system and being able to either adapt your body through conscious control or say, you know, I'm going to be a lot more comfortable if I'm more lizardy for the next like two months working on this project. Well, I've been Wim Hofing it, man. Dude, really? I don't have any hot water here. Nice. So, so you just so, have to. So I've been forced into Wim Hofing. Well, I tell you, know, people are like, I hate the cold. That's the first objection to people doing it. So like, I hate the cold. And, 
And I'm like, yeah, that, that first 30 second shower, like I was like, I don't think I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And then the next thing, you know, you do, you know, there's a 60 day, a very a deep 60 day course that Wim offers. And I think it's worth, it's only, a, I have nothing to do with it. So I'm just telling people, but it's, you know, at the time when I started, it was like 260 bucks, 270 bucks. Um, I only know that theoretically because I went to see Wim Hof the first time he came to America. And because we were the very first people in the country, uh, they gave us access to the, to the membership area. So for me, that's, a um, something I'm privileged to have, but it was also flying to California and being a part of the program <laughs> from the start, at least here in America. And that whole cold thing, man, what's it like for you? Are you doing, uh, how many minutes are you in the, I mean, I know you're probably going fast, but uh, what I'm doing, I'm probably cheating. It's like, I'll do like one quarter of my body. Then I'll do another quarter. And so I do it like four, right? And then yep. by that, I'm like all cold. And then I just go for it. All right. And then just, but still, you know, the, just to reveal. And afterwards, like, I feel like my eyeballs are going to pop out of my head. <laughs> um, so when you start, I, I will reveal this. When you start the 60 day program for the first week, you're, you're doing the breathing exercises, which are so tapping into the universe. They're really incredible. They, um, that takes you about 15 minutes and the showers for the first week are only 30 seconds. And then next week, yeah, you, I'm, I'm definitely doing longer than 30 seconds. I don't have a choice. Well, I mean, right. And I you got to rinse in, off. Yeah. I shave in the shower too, my face. So. Yeah. Oh, oh, cold water for the face shower. Oh, I think that's that hurts. Why, I think that's why my eyes start like bulging out of my head. <laughs> and then I get out, and sometimes I forget to turn the heat on in the camper, and it's even colder. So I got to the point for everybody listening that from the time I met Wim Hof and started the 60-day program, there were times where I was doing the breathing. So there's a process to do it it's up for variation it doesn't have to be exactly the same for everyone but what i was doing it was about a 45 minute process for me in the mornings and when i started this is when i started and when i had worked my way up to these longer cold showers where you get out of the shower and your body's red like literally red and you look like a lobster and even though you've been in cold water for like 20 30 40 minutes or whatever well, it was 20 below zero outside and I had a, uh, I had a piece of furniture on my patio. So I would, um, go outside and sit and continue. I wouldn't stop the breathing exercise, you know, while you're doing the cold in the shower. But then it's literally 20 below zero and I would throw shorts on and go outside and continue the breathing exercises for another 10 minutes at 20 below zero. And it's very surreal, you know, what you're experiencing. You're not at this point, by the way. Yeah, it's cold, okay? So if you ever get the chance to see Wim Hof talk about it, he literally says, yeah, it's effing cold. It's not like we don't know it's cold, you know, when you're doing it. But believe it or not, you're no longer at this point. I can tell you the experience is you're used to it. It has nothing to do with the temperature. It has to do with where your brain entrainment is mm -hmm. and where your meditation is. And when you are doing it, 
what you're controlling and what you're feeling in your body, there's this hyper sense of everything. And it's so positive and good that when you do Wim Hofing and you do um, uh, experience the, the, the temperature, it goes from that first week, you know, when you're first trying it and going, oh my gosh, I can't do this or I'm not going to be able to keep it up to it's, it has nothing to do with tolerating. That's all I'm saying is that when you get, you know, 45 days in, you're going to be doing that. You're going to be doing something you never thought you'd be doing and you'll be doing it in extreme low temperatures and you'll be, it'll be quite, quite crazy and impressive. But where you're looking at yourself and you're connecting with fields energy, I don't know how to describe it, but you know, the cold is helping and the cold is part of that process to connect and it doesn't become a thing that you sit there and just, oh gosh, five more minutes or I think I'm going to do laundry today or I feel bad or I feel good about something. None of that is in your head. You, you're not, you know, that thing I was, okay, because I've talked about this before. So since I'm on a roll, uh, you know, the you go to a yoga studio and maybe for those of you even tried it once or twice, you know, the first thing they say is, you know, whatever your problems are, you know, leave them at the door. They don't matter. Just be present. You don't have to ask yourself that when it's 20 below zero. <laughs> or <you're, laughs> You don't have a choice. <laughs> no. There's no the thinking is about. Yeah. You are not sad. You are not happy. You are not upset about some BS from a game or a promotion or a, a firing or a job decline or job acceptance or you just finished another book, like literally your mind is present because that cold and your breathing technique immediately wires you in to what you're trying to walk into. Like it, it, you can do it without the cold. You can get to this place like binaural beats, you know, doing brain entrainment does not require you to freeze your butt off. However, when you hit that mindset, when you hit that presence, that mind presence, man, the cold just doesn't matter. It's really, it's really, really interesting. But the, the it does connect, you know, those superhuman abilities, you know, as far as the documentary goes, it was something to try to explain to people that you're, you know, all these hunches you have about, past lives, paranormal. I feel like I connect to something, genetic abilities. Like I was born with a tail. It's like, Oh, that was an accident. Synestheses are an accident. Um, all the bizarre information we know about twins, about connecting or in, you know, collective human consciousness. And like my mom called, she knew there was something wrong. And she asked how my test went. She asked if there was anything going on or if I was okay. I mean, there's story after story of different people connecting in different ways. And it's always like, oh, isn't that a coincidence? Isn't that interesting? And it's never really, uh, the connections aren't really pulled together that if you had a human race for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even longer, living and connecting and terraforming a planet to the degree that there's a response on a genetic level uh, the programming all over 
um, even our science news, science daily, science, uh, live science, you know, pick, pick your favorite threads or your favorite sites, but all the time there's new discoveries where they're saying, well, this looks like bio, this, this biological, uh, process looks like biological switching, like ones and zeros or, uh, ones, you know, um, negative positives that it's, it seems very technical and, what we might think of as nature really may be technical abilities that we just have no memory of. And I think we're going to get a lot broader picture. And no matter what you've tried to hide from us, I think it's going to be really hard to hide, you know, a 20 or 30 foot core sample from 80 feet below the planet, you know, within a few feet of a polygonal wall. And, and it turns out to be like, 10 or five or six or, um, you know, a number of different layers of material that has been mind blowingly, maybe compacted to different levels. Like each layer is unique to itself. That would be mind bending that you're adding layers and each layer has its own level of consistency and, and, and then compare it from like one end of what they're finding in Guatemala with those LIDAR scans or, now they've come up with even more. They're using squids, by the way, more. So for everybody listening, if you're not asleep yet, superconducting quantum interface devices, squids. And that, that squids don't, doesn't actually line up like whatever, but that's the acronym squids. And the, what they're finding down to this quantum scale of magnetism the detailed imaging beyond LIDAR and the technologies that are coming are showing vast populations in dynastic periods that in the Mayan eras and prior that we have a massive, I mean, they're not ready to say it out loud that there's a massive history to these pyramids and these uh, megalithic structures that are, well, it's exactly what the Incas said. Uh, we didn't build these, the gods did every single time. In every culture where you have a tribal, in quotes, indigenous group, because everybody's from somewhere and nobody's from where they say they're indigenous. But I'm sure there's some, somebody's going to prove that wrong. I'm sure there's like someone indigenous that's literally only from that one spot. They just never moved. I'm sure it's out there. But as an example to clarify, everyone in North America, South America, Central America came from, um, at the minimum theory, they came from Siberia and from the looks of the Roman trading routes, the Templars, the Knights Templars. But prior to that, the Chinese, uh, their great fleets were, were clearly on the west coast of all of the Americas four, 400, 500 years before Columbus. So we have Pope Pius, uh, the Pope in the, in the thousand millennium. There are, I have a book because, you know, Jen Dale and I are working on new books. Um, and there is actual, I have a Yale book that shows papal knowledge of the Americas in like 1090. They were well aware of America. And it's like, this is out of vogue, but this is in a giant Yale maps public publication from the 60s so for everyone out there listening 
find old history books. You would, or old Harvard, Yale, anyone who's done any archaeological work, if you see an archaeological book from a college in the 60s or 50s or 40s, they didn't know what to edit out yet. They didn't, they were saying things that were clearly not popular part of the Darwinian narrative, which again is a theory which blows my mind, but the, you know, having papal conversations about going to America and the Americas in general, you know, that, that wasn't supposed to happen. But, but here we have a giant, and by the way, a very large coffee table sized book from Yale talking about the maps of the Americas. <laughs> I mean, and there's like a debate on this. So, you know, Templars in America, real thing. Welsh in America, likely real. Phoenicians, for sure. Egyptians, maybe. Chinese, for sure. And then all of it filters down into these, what are still and should be, getting to the point, megalithic structures that predate everyone in the Americas. And whatever survivor tribes got on those damn things and modified them, they still didn't dig 60, 80 feet, you know, 40 feet deep under these structures. They, they just came across them and they, they made them their own. And I don't think that any archaeologist doesn't want to not make a really big find. But the stuff we're talking about now tonight, I mean, this is completely unique. No one, no one, this is not anything anyone's done. True. It makes me think about things though, like taking things maybe even a step further. Yeah. Um, like, when you talk about investigating things like on this quantum level, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're looking at essentially emptiness. We're looking at yeah. a field of consciousness. Yeah. What if the entire Earth was is created out of a field of consciousness by some kind of beings or being? Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, and, it's and, totally and, possible. And... and this whole thing has been by design from the very beginning. Yep. And uh, and it's just still running somehow. Barely. Yeah, right. And um, and we're just sort of rediscovering it. So we're, we're we're looking at like like the creation of the pyramids, and we're looking at Stonehenge, and we're looking at things like Quebecle Tepe. But maybe the entire Earth is manufactured somehow through some type of conscious event. Yeah, you partially, like when I'm looking at like, why did it fail? Why did this worldwide global society, you know, one of the theories is they left and the aliens, you know, again, it's not that there's not aliens, but is it possible that either an advanced, again, part of one of the theories is my, my thoughts are that humans that survived multiple cataclysms are still here. And we identified him as alien. And then very possible and very likely, they left the planet. They colonized the solar system. They were definitely not getting along with Mars, apparently, <laughs> or did. The possibility is that they left the solar system entire, entirely and that the ships that we're seeing are ships that have come back outside of military experiments. The ships that have come back are those same groups of people and maybe they're not getting along with the survivors that stayed here or again maybe they left and either didn't expect anyone that was left on the planet to survive mm -hmm. and then awkward they come back and we're here 
because they just didn't think any of us would make it or there was only a few left. They really thought that they had advanced to a point and they left the planet and we were left on our own or consciously getting back to the worst case scenarios that having the ability to work consciously with matter to think therefore it is to literally call something into existence that they called something in that collectively was some terrifying uh, cataclysm monster whatever the cataclysm manifested itself as it was because they um, allowed it uh, to you know uh, like a collective thought process on a sports team you know they manifested a monster they manifested a reality that wasn't part of the terraformed programmed genetic you know the the bio switching technology that we call in quotes nature of trees and plants and animals that they manifested something outside of what should have been part of the system and it and it took over and it destroyed things and it looks very i guess in a sense biblical but then we can rewind it further and go other beings consciously thought up this whole planet and its very existence in this universe, although infinite, is really a Rick and Morty battery powering their mm. spaceship. There's yeah. that. Yeah, I love that theory. I know, right? It's like we gotta fix our we gotta fix our battery, Morty. Um, <laughs> just that would suck. You know, we're just somebody's like lithium ion battery. <laughs> When it comes also to like like things like the Great Pyramid, do you think it was physically built, or do you think maybe it was just manifested through consciousness? You know, there was something to. I mean, I mean, if it has that type of construction where the architecture is matching the waves of frequency, that to me almost does lead to it was possibly made through consciousness. You know, it, it is possible that what looks like Merlin, you know, Arthur, King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table, Merlin magic, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of magic. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about how it could be, you know, that's what would, what would nanobots and nanotechnology look like to anyone who had no idea what nanotechnology is. And is it possible to manifest something right out of thin air that is really just trillions of nano factories that are you know 20 30 50 atoms in size which by the way we were 50 60 to 150 atoms in nano mini manufacturing facilities producing other nanobots by 2008 which is referenced in the singularity is near by ray kurzweil and that was just a reference point for people who want to go kind of worrying about the dire straits of having nanotechnology that could manifest just you and I having a conversation going, yeah, we should build a pyramid and then literally directing nanobots from our mind to the cloud. We've collected like a SimCity city that I know, like we could build some really cool shit with that, man. Right. And so it could just, what, what would, you know, we, we could sit at a party and chill and outside our, both of our Lamborghinis that we're going to drive home in are manifested. Wouldn't that be a cool and, podcast episode where like you and I just manifest a pyramid? Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> it's like sim archaeology. 
and then uh, create a completely fake timeline. And but the the idea of okay, so the the real question is, like Merlin, through the the energies of the universe grabbing onto some quantum particles with no actual what we think of as mechanical technology, even if it's super super tiny like a nanobot, but through the frequencies and energies think um the atoms to pull together and they would create you know the blocks and this is one of my early critical arguments of we have these post-dynastic stories of the anunnaki and of you know they came here because they needed gold i'm like if you're an interdimensional space traveling alien you just put two atoms together and make whatever the hell you want so the idea would be if they have the ability to program and manage genes and subatomic particles, like right now, nanotechnology is exactly that where you need so many atoms to make fill in the blank molecule. Mm -hmm. So whether it's gold, silver, fill in the blank, you can, what we're doing right now, we have the scalability to put uh, atoms together to create, whether it's gold or, fill in the blank i mean we can we can create anything we want out of thin air we just don't have the scalability for it yet so when we look at these ancient peoples and we we're like well they came from another planet because they needed gold or minerals it's like that's a very 1950s flying saucer sort of way to look at it it's not it's not that we need um you know that kind of you don't need to fly anywhere and use giant digging equipment to dig up raw minerals. You, you just create them mm -hmm. from pulling atoms together. I mean, by 2008, it's pretty brilliant. I've never actually put it on a show, but they did a map of the world. Kind of like the one, I don't know what you can see it right now, but behind me is a classic map of the world. Oh, it's in the documentary though. Uh, there's a map of the world. It's a very famous map of the world. And, they basically reproduced it on 19, just 19 hydrogen atoms. And they did that in like 2007. And it's not a bad looking map, but it, but they built it out of 19 atoms. And that is like, we, I don't think we have our heads around that. So if you wanted to manifest a giant building and collectively you're a massive society that can just make stuff out of thin air, would it be possible that nobody lift a finger and that the pyramid literally almost built itself? I think it's possible. Um, now, the problem is for everyone listening is that the pyramids have been adapted and repaired mm -hmm. for... Yeah, the original structure of it. We have no idea. Like, it bums me out about the casing stones you know, that these um, kings of the time literally came across and treated Egypt like a giant junkyard and just just kept grabbing everything. And I'm glad some of the casing material is there. And to me, it indicates, by the way, a high, high level of technology. The casing material is pretty spectacular. And it had writing on it. And, you know, Jen Deo, the archaeologist, you know, my friend, she's told me 
and show me pictures of what some of the material looked like. And I got to tell you, it's very consistent in size. Mm-hmm. I mean, very, I would, I would think maybe it's even machine, uh, perfect. And the entire pyramids were covered, at least from the casing material that they have left, had hieroglyphs on it. And so whether those were dynastic hieroglyphs or whether they were hieroglyphs from the original builders, I mean, it literally could have had how-to instructions on it. It it literally could have been left with all the information we needed to run those pyramids on them. I mean, that that's, but we don't know. So getting back to the whole manifestation thing and, excuse me, in general, I do think it's possible that when you have a rogue mind and you're not 100% conscious of what your abilities truly are, like, you know, the sweet, happy ending stories kind of are when we think of, oh, the car flipped over and the little 110-pound mom, you know, single-handedly lifted the car off the kid and, you know, saved the kid from, you know, burning to death in a car. You know, we think of the car crash. That's a common one, and we know it's true. We know it's real, and that that's happened. Um, but we never, we never equate the idea that our manifestation abilities – and collectively as a group, if we believe something that even if it's not real, is it possible to manifest in the ether something that mimics your darkest nightmares? It's not actually the monster you think it is, but you're shaping. I think it's closer to sand on the beach than it is water in the ocean. Like, you know, you can put a shape of something in the ocean, but the water is just the water. I think that with our consciousness, we can, we can shape it about as temporarily as a castle on the beach. I mean, we can get really detailed with our effect on the ether, but at the same time, the ether doesn't change from what it is and it ultimately does disperse. But is it nanoseconds? Is it, is it, is it like if a billion people wake up and have the same thought every day? Is it just a constant as the world turns and as people get up and go to bed and think about, well, I'm afraid of this one thing. Does it manifest that one thing anew every few hours? Does it make the ether take the shape of that nightmare that you're thinking of? And does it just mimic that behavior um, over and over? And I don't know. That That's something that's been on my mind for a while. I don't know the answer to that either. It sounds like we're getting high already, right? It does sound like we're getting a little high. This could be a Joe Rogan conversation. (laughs) Our last interview was pretty out there. Was it? (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't even come up with a title for it, so I called it like, um, you wanted strange, you got got it. Okay, so watch the new Not Aliens documentary, uh, but uh, tell me about last night, please, because it sounds like people need to watch a second documentary. No, no, this was our last episode I'm talking about. Oh, gosh, that one. Yeah. All right, I get credit for that. Not not for uh, TerraCore. Oh, by the way, the title of this documentary is TerraCore, Our Ancient Past Revealed, Discovering Our Lost History. That's what's on YouTube. That's what it's called. It's but I didn't actually say what the hell it was, but please, you didn't know how to title our last, it was that crazy. Were we out there that far? (laughs) 
in the nethers of the ether. How how is it done for views? <laughs> it was one of our best episodes ever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's epic. Um that's epic. Uh you're gonna have just I I wanna yeah, I, I would love to go over those. That's that's amazing. Uh, what <laughs> we we I believe we covered obviously for those listening. You never know how far into a episode that we're going to cover something spectacular or interesting. So never tune out after 20 minutes or jump ahead. <laughs> Listen to the whole thing. It can get we, pretty weird. Yeah. And and this was uh, a good catch up for us because the uh, I spent, you know, I'm really glad you liked the documentary. It, it took me, you know, it was a long time to get and the voiceovers you know i i'm really grateful to michael from dark hour paranormal to have composed and and mind you he didn't do it specifically for my documentary but he opened up his entire suite of it's kind of like going over to bach or beethoven's mm-hmm. place or you know i'm just picking people they're hopefully familiar with and i literally got to dig through the drawers i mean he literally opened up so much music to me and said what do you think would work it was so generous it was so kind I was so grateful because, I mean, as you heard, I mean, I think the music fits really well. Excellent. Excellent. And it it even switches as the mood sort of changes throughout the documentary. I I particularly like there's this music where it's like, it sounds like happy little dorky ants walking or, or like kind of silly, like clearly the clowns are doing somersaults now. And, uh, I gratuitously use that as the Egyptians are uh, reacquiring a giant 12, 1500 ton statue and moving it. But then I haven't mentioned Simon Laurie King from the Silk podcast in Scotland. Um, you haven't met Simon yet, but he's the one doing the voiceovers and he um, he's, he's quite brilliant. He's the one with it's, the it's, accent? Yes, that's he's from Scotland and uh, you will love Simon. Um, he is a great guy. You're, uh, uh, he's an, uh, I'm extending the invite. He's in, he's invited me and anyone that he knows, uh, dark hour a bit, but he would have us out there in a second if they would open up the borders. So we should, uh, we should, who doesn't want to go to Scotland for a, for a whiskey tour? Yeah. Yeah. All right. See, now we got, Oh, this is going to be great. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to throw that out there that we have to go to Scotland eventually. There are so many mysterious. I mean, the interesting thing too is Scotland. Well, a lot of people don't look at it this way, but Scotland and Ireland and England, um, this whole area, that whole space is really the high area of Doggerland. And Doggerland is underwater, but it wasn't even four and 6,000 years ago. And the amount of land at 8,000 years ago is spectacular and at 12 like at the younger dryest the i.e biblical flood um it is significant the amount of valleys uh rivers i mean we've talked about Doggerland before but all the way to france and there's so much land that would represent contemporaries to gobekli tepe that what makes scotland so mysterious the dolmens is that it really ties back, I think, to the truly most ancient um, 
society of our advanced past. And this is the high ground. So this wasn't prime real estate maybe, you know, 18,000 years ago. This could have been really the countryside to an advanced human society. And really everything we're looking for is like that city that's off the coast of Cuba that's 2,300 feet deep. You know, we're, we, we need to be looking. Marine archaeology is where it's at. There's, and okay, back to your point, sedimentary DNA research. I you mean, did, you did get that message I sent you about buying that submarine, right? Oh my gosh, hilarious. Okay. So for everyone listening, I'm shopping and I get a text from Gary that says we should get this submarine. And it is not a fake ad, it's for a real submarine that in quotes the seller said serious inquiries only 7.8 million firm make an offer and it's like okay um i guess i'll take it for a test drive or i'll send somebody out and see if it, they don't drown <laughs> it's a you know submarine. <laughs> it is yeah, it's not like a diesel it's nuclear you're kidding no, so I, How was that even for sale? I don't know, man. You know, that's amazing. If you throw some uranium in that reactor, we're we're good, man. What are those? Um, you know, those people who go out, uh, American pickers. Yeah. Can think of it for a minute. <laughs> so, like, we could do like world military pickers. You know, we're today we're buying a submarine. We're flipping it for so much money to the Bolivian government. Uh, you know, up next, those crazy zany guys find, <laughs> you know, six hydrogen bombs for sale. I was just thinking like, all the things we could do with that sub, though. We, we could do the Atlantis expedition with it. We could do Antarctica with it. And we could do the coast off of Cuba with it. That submarine kills three birds with one sub. It does, depending on, I don't remember the depth on it. Do you, do you recall? It's a submarine. There's no limit. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Come on. Have you not seen uh, Run Silent, Run Deep? And uh, the one with, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Sean Connery. Uh, Red, 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 uh, not Red Alert. That dates me. I don't know. The the Red October. Red October. Red October. So they had, like, remember they were like, they, there's always these episodes where they, push the subs past depths that they get crushed at like a can. Yeah, but it has, so, it has to be more than 2,000 feet. I mean, I, I'm sure we can I don't know. at least like 5,000 feet this thing. In our next episode, we become military pickers. And, uh, you know, even if we went and just looked at these items for sale, I mean, like, hey, do you want to buy a used yacht? No, 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 I got something better. Check this out. Like maybe Richard has a submarine. You know he doesn't, but I do and did. I still want to get back out and talk to him for Dr. Richard Allen Miller. For everyone listening, we are there is a semi-standing invite for us to uh, visit in person. I would like to make that happen. Yeah, so he might have a submarine. Though. We are quickly. Any other observations on the documentary? <laughs> I think the second one we could do from a submarine. Part and that's two, it. underwater. Oh, man. Well, there's those ruins. And so I will tell you this is that since I've been exposed to wrecks from Leak Project 6K drone, 
man, that thing's spectacular. And I've been wanting to get back into that lake uh, in Wisconsin where those underwater uh, structures are. And no one's gone back really to look at them. And they're, they're basically three mound structures that they've been drawn out really well. But, you know, Scott Walter had gone there and they did a full submersible, but it was too cloudy to really see anything. And since there are underwater drones, it definitely makes me want to go. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what uh, Frank Joseph's plan was for um, to find Atlantis was to use the underwater drone. But I say skip, skip the drones, man. Let's just get the sub. Do you know about the ruins in the bottom of Lake Michigan, the stone circles in I've Lake Michigan? That. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty damn trippy when you see it, when you see the photos. I mean, it's what the hell is that doing at the bottom of Lake Michigan? You know, it, it maybe well, made it before it was a lake, maybe made it after it was a lake. That that maybe is was it made by something human? You know, that is the possibility. It's it's still very man-made. I mean, as far as the structure, the way it looks, it doesn't look like a natural formation. This isn't like. A, um, off the coast of Japan where there's an argument, oh, you know, this is how the rock sloughs off. It's, you know, this is not, uh, you know, man-made. But the, these are actual Stonehenge-looking structures in the bottom of Lake Michigan. They definitely don't appear to be on a, a natural formation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I think all these things are um, connected. Yeah, I mean, well, it, you know, it makes sense. They're, 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 yeah, these, this, these circular structures around the world that look similar, the description of Atlantis as concentric circles, um, I don't know. Uh, to me, I think it all has to be connected. I think so also. It's, um, it's not possible to say, okay, well, if we had the paradigm that we have now, then yeah, it makes sense. Oh yeah, everything is random. But we have lots of tribes on the planet that are living around more advanced societies like the one we're currently in. It's no different in the past. I think there was always advanced societies. And I'm not talking antiquity as in 6,000 years ago. I'm talking, you know, really close to Younger Dryas, pre-Younger Dryas, those the Atlantean culture that was at least maybe, maybe it was just a, allegory but at least 10 cities mm -hmm. and the possibility of all of it uh, being connected in an earlier global society is way more than likely I think it's just a matter of proving out things that uh, nobody's looked at as a coherent um, single baselined explanation outside of just saying well evolution happened and once everybody was a tadpole or bacteria and then boom here we are. Hmm. That's why I think maybe the whole Earth was engineered. Uh, I do believe it. From the very it beginning. does look to be terraformed, but manifested. I don't know if it was manifested, but then there is some weird stuff about the moon. And yeah, how did the moon the get there? How did right? the moon get in just the right spot? There is some unnerving, bizarre on a biosphere on a giant terraforming planet size scale there's some seriously scary stuff about 
you know, the Earth circuits like the Nazca and the Bolivia Nazca lines and the Jordan why, ones. Why and, is it when I look at the moon through a telescope, I see roads? You are high. No? No, I'm joking. No. You ever no. look at the moon through a good telescope, you can see roads. I've never seen roads. No. But I've never looked at a telescope. I've really? never. Oh, okay. Are you kidding Just so me? Everyone's, yes, I've seen the moon through some very, very nice telescopes. In fact, I believe one of the tele. I mean, like, these are home hobbyists, mm-hmm. and the the, I mean, they were tens of thousands of dollars. These these telescopes were incredible, but they're you know here, they're in my region, they're maybe not the best, uh, you know the the light pollution and all that, but I've seen Mars and Venus and you know but and the Moon, but I didn't see anything, you know beyond its. The pot marks, you know, beyond the impact. Oh, oh, were you looking for the roads? No, I wasn't. Time, I mean, could you? The next time you look at the moon through a telescope, look for roads. Left, right, middle, twelve o'clock, eleven Everywhere. o'clock. Just, 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 just put your mind in that thing. Like I'm going to look for this telescope and I'm look for roads. And I'm telling you, totally you, going to. You will see roads. All right, because I know the NASA has that lunar project. I know that I don't know the .gov uh, links or logins for anyone out there who wants to find that for us. Right. I well, that's pretty apparent. That's kind of depressing because I was just a kid. I always wanted to work for NASA. Yeah, they've been a disappointment for our generation. (laughs) Man, right? If if I could have only like found archaeological dinosaurs on the moon, I would have been thrilled. That would have been perfect. You know. If I could be an archaeologist in space, that's just so exciting. It should have been so interesting. Should have been. I think that's a possibility because you know we, we you know if you if there was an advanced society, the dialogue always turns to: Could we have gotten to Mars? Could we have already colonized it? Could there be ruins on Mars that would mimic the ones here? And I think that's you know everyone is every time they see a blurry mound, they're like, "It's a pyramid! It's a pyramid! It's a blurry mound!" Because we have a crappy camera. And you know, looks everything looks different from oh, eight hundred miles away. You know, it's not. I don't know. I do think there's something fishy about if we were here and we left the planet, like the Black Knight satellite stuff. I do think it ties together, and and, and it's reasonable to assume that if we were here and we were more advanced and we were over, I think, I think we were more advanced longer. Then I mean, clearly we have people alive today that can remember still horse and buggy, but I think we were very advanced for well uh, of a length of time for us to have settled or colonized or created bases off world. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but I don't think the moon was. I think somebody moved, put the moon there, and I also think that we probably have colonized Venus and are still on Venus. That would be interesting. I just did an interview, one that came out today, with uh, Craig Campobasso. And he did a documentary, or mini-doc, whatever you want to call it, on Valley Mm -hmm. Thor. Okay. You know, he's supposedly a Venetian who had came down here to work with the United States government. I mean, what if he was just a human who had left Earth, went to Venus, and then came back? Yeah, it's, that's the other thing. It's like the people who are worried that, no, there's aliens, there's aliens. It's like, look. And that's why he looked think, like one of us, you know, and nobody noticed you. 
Right. Well, and there's the other thing. It's like if you have full control and command of the genetic sequencing of what you are, you can adapt how you look to your your external technologies. And, you know, again, you wear a set of you wear a certain uh, outfit if you're in the Indy 500 versus if you're drag racing. I mean, they're similar, like don't get burned alive in your car. But the reality is that we have different outfits for whether you're going to a wedding or if you're going to go fight a fire in so many thousands of degrees. I think genetically, when you have full control of the cellular system and you're fully conscious, I don't think it's a a generational or a morphology that takes time. I think it may have been more of on command to say, you know, I I need to be in this condition or like I fancy this uh, suit or, you know, when it's not functional, when it's not related to your work or your activity so for them to just let it lie, you know, the half truth of, you know, you're asking me if we're alien. It's like, well, we're alien to this time. We're alien to this planet or, well, or I'm an illegal alien. It's like, you know, they, they could be just double speaking through uh, how they look to not avoid, you know, oh, you know, we're aliens, but to actually avoid saying, well, look, actually you're our great, 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 great grandkids and. Like, yeah, we kind of really. What is human? Like, like, where does that word even come from? Like, hominid man? Is that? Yeah, I, th- I think that. Like, the, like where did the, the word human come from? I'm assuming it's a Greek Latin origin thing where yeah, they decided this is what we are. <coughs> I mean, but yeah, I don't think yeah, it's. Who, who made us human? We're, we're from Earth. We're Earth. Yeah. And I, so, so, I don't... So, so, did we actually come from a planet named Hugh? <laughs> no, I think. I think it does have to do with our, just the the way they labeled our, uh, you know what, we're, this is a perfect time to like internet search something, but we should let people. <laughs> no, I want to know. <laughs> oh, mean, you want to know I, now? I, I, yeah. I, I mean, this is going to bother me. Okay. You know? So we're doing this. Let's. So let's see where. Okay. We're going to do this now. Latin word for humus, meaning earth or ground. Yep, and the Franciscan priest, the author Richard Rohr wrote, being human means acknowledging that we're made from the earth and will return to the earth in a recent meditation. Okay, so who named the planet Earth? Oh, boy. Who decided that we're earthlings? I'm guessing that's Greek or, you know, again, I'm glad... The answer is we don't know. Perfect. It's English and German words. So it's it it's derives from both. Uh, they both respectively is, mean no, ground. Isn't, isn't that a little odd that we live on a planet called Earth and nobody knows who named it? You know, it's also interesting about the fact that they're bringing it up here is Earth is the only planet that wasn't named after a Greek or a Roman god or goddess. That's interesting. Why is Earth Earth? So, so, so and <laughs> the question is that nobody really thinks the answer. We just accept these things like we're retarded. Oop, differently enabled. Oh, that's yeah. that's a thing now. Oh yeah. Um, well, as if we're yeah. We're, right. But we should have been, we should have been asking these questions as kids. But we accept. I feel we like. Were, but we were. Uh, I accepted like. Okay, well, Earth's Earth, and humans are humans, because I was told this. I think we're but, brushed but now, off a lot. But, but now I'm like, 
This might not be Earth. No. That might but not it's, be human. Yeah. So. I, I need some proof it, that this is Earth that I'm living on. Well, if you take the one pill, you wake up and it was all a bad dream. Take the other pill and go down the rabbit hole, Neo. <laughs> you, do you have these pills on you? Right. You'd be taking it right away. I'll, I'll take them both at the same time and see what happens. Oh, would that be like the worst cancel out ever? <laughs> yeah. It could have been, you know, it's like, wow, I can't even do virtual reality funner. <laughs> there's a, there's another word, funner. Funner. So, well, we've covered classical Greek Latin slash history. Um, this is a little bit of everything. But, but you know, I, I think this whole thing, though, about the Earth and who named it would be a great episode of itself. Yeah. The, you know, um, because I don't know if anybody's ever even covered it. Well, I think they do when they say, well, in, a, in the sense that they're like, oh, it looks like there was an ancient nuclear attack here. Or it looks like there were people in India and, they're, and you know, the, the Vedas are describing nuclear war and... Here's a city where it looks like everyone flash shadowed uh, and got right. nuked where they stood. Right. That's interesting because all early other planets are named after Greek gods, except Earth. Yep. Yep. And, and you mentioned all those Vedic texts, and you know we got the Hopi texts and the Sumerian texts. Yep. You know, so Earth must fall into those categories and not the Greek category. Yeah. Well, we well and. No, this is going to bother me forever. I might have to stop, start a whole entire different podcast on why is Earth Earth? Right. I would. I think we should. I mean, I think that's part of the news cycle that I wanted to do. Seriously, it's like we have these stories. We keep referencing them, but we never dig back past and really have a dialogue with ourselves out loud. I think it, it comes up when you're having a barely philosophical conversation about, okay, well, what is our origin and why is it this or why is it that? Or what's the following on? And I do think that it's not really taken seriously. It's like a fun parlor conversation, a, a party conversation. Just say, you know, it, it seems like our our origins are incredibly more uh, awkward, mysterious, or terrifying me. or interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it bothers me even more that I never questioned it until it's taken me 53 years of being alive to even question the planet that I live on. It is very odd that we've been, and then again, like, like like you talk about the sleep mode, man, right? The safe mode, I, like, yeah, something's not right. No, and it relies on you to stay distracted and not engaged, not plug in. They need to get you. I almost feel like it's a they need to get you far enough through your existence that you don't accidentally plug in and become more aware. Are we becoming more aware? You think? I think overall, but I do think that um, there's there's cyclical cycles of how to make it chaotic for people. I I think that's a fact. So I, you know, whether it's a world war, world conflict, economic or other disaster, I think they are they're able to mute the complexities of what's going on, and and then you get distracted. Right, you, you know, it's like something I, I, you just—I do, but I mean, most people do. But then, right, I start asking these questions, and 
become obsessed. Yeah, and, and I then I started people... questioning other things. Like, 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 so, like, now I'm wondering, like, why wouldn't flat earthers have asked that question first? Right. Why did the church start with everything's flat and it's blasphemy to say otherwise? What did they know is the big argument that they know that it is. And then to say that it isn't is heresy. And then, then they flip script and go, no, 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 it's actually round. And so was the truth. It was flat or was the truth that it was, you know, is it some sort of state of mind? Is the truth even is, is this what it really is? Right. So the overall holographic. Thank you, Doctor well, Richard. Well, the advantage of the holographic theory. I don't know. I don't know. We could be living on Mars, or maybe we are on Mars and we're looking at Mars and it's actually Earth, right? And we're on Mars, right? Huh? I think we're probably on Uranus <laughs> <laughs> with some Klingons <laughs> yeah. looking for Captain Kirk. <laughs> we get low. We get real low. So what, uh, I mean, as far as uh, different dialogue, I did this actually, we did talk about Mars colonization on Richard Hoagland. Um, he and I talked about that a few months ago and the idea of the intersolar settlements and uh, the possibility that we were at least solarly populated at some point. I, I mean, there's... I think we may have originated from Mars from the simple fact fact that we are bipedal, and bipedal is not natural to whatever this planet is that we're living on. Well, what's interesting too is there's I, I do not know the name of the author, but it was pointed out to me that there's something about our eyeballs, our irises, and the way they function that they're strictly Mars related. Um, yeah, that's it, it's very interesting the. Again, taken alone, it's always an anomaly. It's always an out-of-place, out-of-time artifact. But together, it's it's quite spectacular. It's a whole story. It's a whole... It's our history that we don't even know. Yeah, no, totally, totally get it. I I think that we can continue to explore, I think, in more detail or more, like, maybe specific zeroed-in segments where we give some people some rabbit holes to go down. I think that that you know that was my attempt for the TerraCore uh documentary uh which simon from silk pointed out he's like were you were you titling it TerraCora to talk about earth maiden you know i was i'm like that's a cool title i should have thought of that i just thought TerraCore would be a good mm-hmm. title and uh i wasn't specifically trying to call out earth maidens and discovering our lost history but it got there i guess somehow almost so pretty cool all right man so before we wrap up this episode yes where can my listeners find you and find a new documentary uh they are going to find it on youtube at not aliens you're going to find me my general schedule and a great member area with a lot of great content on notaliens.com lot of different membership options it really goes all of it goes to support the channel the work we're doing here and everywhere and being able to do more expeditionary trips so appreciate that i'm also on rockfin at not aliens and really everything imaginable that's where we want yeah we are and um, when's the uh, second edition of it's not aliens coming out 
Oh man, that was that's a. I will have. I will say that I might for some. There are some fans out there that have been waiting. I'm thinking about doing a a a minimal vanity printing. This is the first time I'm mentioning this. By the way, I've been thinking about. In fact, I was thinking about quite a bit today. A lot of people have been waiting. Um, I'm waiting on a large publisher to. I think that by the time we revise everything and by the time. Uh, the book comes out. We're definitely missing Christmas, <laughs> I think. And so really, I think for those who have been waiting patiently, I'm going to get kind of like a secret sub edition out to them. So that might be limitedly available on my website in in a couple months. That'd be great. Awesome. So that might be by just right at Christmas or just after. I will post the links in the notes of this episode so my listeners can find you. Thanks for thank you um, saving my ass because I really needed an episode for this finish off this week. <laughs> You're welcome. It. And um, uh, hang on for one moment, and I'll play the outro. Sure.